Voice of America, Washington, D.C., signing on. Welcome to another episode of Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org, and of course, hosted by me, N.C. Scout, the author of The Gorilla's Guide to the Balfang Radio. I am joined by an incredible guest and was hands down one of the most popular guests that, if not the most popular guest that I've ever had on Radio Contra. Uh, the conversation that we had previously generated more follow-on traffic from listeners and probably engaged uh, and opened people's minds in ways that I, I don't think that they had been typically stimulated from um, certain circles that, that we inhabit and, and uh, certainly the, the gun verse, the survival and prepping fields and so on and so forth. Your, your mind is very much a breath of fresh air. And of course I am talking to you and have the, the honor and the privilege of sitting down with the author of the eternal war, Mr. E.M. Burlingame. How you doing brother? Pretty good, bro. Thanks for having me back. Of course, of course. It's always a, uh, as I said, a, a breath of fresh air to speak to an American original and an original thinker, uh, someone who uh, doesn't exist inside the box. When we say, you know, oh, think outside the box, well, there's no box, um, you know, and, and you, you approach things in a very innovative way uh i uh in the last scout course uh the the conclusion of the scout course and going into uh, the recce course so six days of fun and small unit tactics and taking civilians who uh, many of them have no background in any tactical sense whatsoever and you're immediately throwing them into this immersing them into this world of small unit tactics and, you know, what that means and to see them developmentally over six day time period go from literally zero to now they know how to execute a raid on an LZ at night uh, and, and send a product up uh, on top of that over the radio. So that that's a, it, it's, it's very, very impressive to see all that. The reason I bring that up and, and I know, you know, your background in SF, that's, that's bread and butter of, of what y'all do over there. But the, um, the, 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 the reason I bring that up is after we would do all our night stuff, we would go back and of course everybody have drinks and it was, it was a really good time partying into the wee hours of the morning and then getting up and doing it again. 
But uh, I had on SAS Rogue Heroes, which uh, in case nobody has seen it, it is a uh, wonderfully done, if not a little controversial, there's some controversy surrounding the show. But uh, I thought that it was wonderfully done. It's one of my favorite contemporary uh, things of, 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 I guess, war being the topic. And I'm not a big war movie guy. Um, just don't need to don't need to see it. But but I, I really enjoyed this because it was all about the men and it was all about the unit. And it was all about the innovative thinking that went into the, the early days of the British SAS, the, the, gen, the, the genesis of it, of L detachment. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the characters, Patty Main, uh, who's a, a legend, absolute legend. The guy's, guy's a legend. And mm-hmm. I think that the, yeah. the actor that played him did a great job. Um, and, and that was where a lot of the controversy came from. They made Patty Main kind of appears this bloodthirsty psychopath uh but i didn't think so i didn't think that that it covered it that way and and he was portrayed i thought as a very intelligent and passionate man towards especially towards his man in the task at hand so one of the scenes that uh, i had the students watch was when he has the french paratroopers who were part of the, the French resistance and they had been sent there um, from Algeria to train with the, the uh, early detachment of the SAS. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so he approaches the, the, them with a problem. You're going to build a, a tower that you're going to PLF off of, but doesn't tell them that they're doing that. Just says you're going to build, you're going to build two towers that's 30 feet high. And, and, you know, I'm not going to give you any instruction or anything, you know, we're just going to do it. And so, you know, they said, well, well, we we're not trained to ask why, essentially. And, uh, you know, if if you know why. Right. The French military is not trained this way. We don't ask why. Don't ask questions. He said, if you know why you are doing something, you can accomplish the task in your own way when it inevitably goes to shit and it always will. And I, I, I made all of them watch that. See that, that right there is the essence of what you're doing. You're not regurgitating doctrine. You're inventing your own doctrine. You're getting enough tools to figure out what the problem is and you approach it in your own way. And then when you approach it in your own way, you figure out what works and what doesn't. And so I, you know, I, you are very much, why I enjoy talking to you so much and, and getting your input, whether it's, you know, it, the podcast we're doing, this is now the second one, uh, seeing what, what you, you put out on Twitter, which is so uh, mind opening, uh, your takes on things are, are very different from the, uh, what you find in a lot of the alternative media. And it's, it's very much a breath of fresh air and you, it's, you're a thinker in that same vein. And so, sir, I, I really, really appreciate that. Well, I'm honored, especially to be put in the same conversation as Patty and the early SAS. I think people need, if I may, sorry, but I think people need to understand the SAS is a new instrument, shall we say, of empire, but with a very long pedigree that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And culturally in the British system, uh, 
even goes back to things that predate empire, go back to the Dane law and other things. So there's an institutional knowledge in very old institutions um, like the British and particularly the British army as it's evolved over the centuries. Um, and we need to not throw those out, particularly in the modern era. Amen. I agree completely. And and speaking of the modern era, you know, right off the top of the list here of we and, and we could chat for hours. And I know that, that the world would would be a better place for it. Um, yeah. Well, it, no, it I, would. It, it, I, I know this certainly, a bottle of wine. <laughs> this audience, <laughs> this audience certainly would appreciate yeah. it. But right off the top of the list, you know, we 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 have the unfolding. Um, conflict of, of Israel, Hamas, Hezbollah has entered, certainly entered the chat. Um, the United feud. States is, yeah, absolutely. It's a 6,000 year old family feud. It's exactly what it is. And, and they have very long memories uh, that, that, you know, don't translate well to the American experience. And so th there's, there's a thing that, keeps getting bantered about. We heard this in the early days of the Ukraine uh, debacle, which, you know, is, is everybody's taking their eye off of Ukraine. And, you know, I think that, that there's going to be some uh, very embarrassing moments that are going to be unfolding as the, the ground hardens for winter in Ukraine. I think it's, it's you know, I, I have my predictions there, but we keep hearing this phrase coming out of uh, Western politicians, Western, uh, we'll say diplomatic corps officials, so on and so forth, that this rules-based order, they keep saying this, and they keep, they keep using this term with regard to Russia, uh, China. We're, we're increasingly hearing this being applied to the Chinese as well, specifically the Chinese Communist Party, Iran, of course, and, and, you know, it's it's very interesting that each one of these nations are now in alliance with one another economically through BRICS. So, which is a rules-based transactional system. Exactly. If you will expound upon BRICS for us and this rules-based order, what what the West means by that. Um, what, because we can't take everything at face value. And with your unique background in finance and, and understanding all this stuff, expound on this rules-based order and, and uh, BRICS as it applies to BRICS and these parallel economic systems that are emerging. Yeah, okay. So that's not a broad question at all. <laughs> um, that's not to use, the, <clears throat> I think, a basketball term. That's no layup there. Um, uh, so I'll give it a shot, right? Um, I believe what I see in talking to the people I talk to at the levels that I talk to and involved in the things that uh, I've been involved in and pay attention to. Most of the world, 80% of the world, and now easily half the world's real economy, not the um, artificial services economy and financialized economy, but probably 67% of the world's 
base economy, meaning they produce things, they extract, um, refine, and produce things, is waking up to the fact that the Bretton Woods rules-based system is a lie, that it's not rules-based at all. It's, it's rules-based for all of you, but not for us. And that goes back, you know, you brought up the Middle East and, and that family feud, and, and I'll touch on in a second where this one rule for us and another rule for you, but it's a rule-based system lie comes from, and it's 6,000-ish years old. But with BRICS, what's happening is they're realizing that if we are going to conduct business with one another, we need to have a trust-based rules system that we can transact through. And that's really what BRICS is. BRICS is a transaction system that allows for as high a trust and counterparty trust and counterparty risk uh, modeling and pricing, which is the key of any transaction system uh, that is possible in a multipolar world. And that system has been forced to emerge by the fact that we have steadily since 1992 weaponized the Euro dollar system. And people need to be very careful when they talk about the dollar, what they're really talking about is the Euro dollar banking system. And that's a as I said on um, Family Office TV with Angelo Robles uh, last Monday, I think it was. Yeah. Um, Wonderful. And Angelo's a, and, thank you. Angelo's a good friend and he's, he's doing the right things uh, with family offices, et cetera. Um, people really need to stop looking at the dollar as the dollar and really look at the Euro dollar system as a transactional quote unquote rules-based, but really it's not a rules-based system. It's a control system. If you don't do things the way we want you to, you don't get access to bank interbank messaging and therefore you can't conduct transactions or you can't move your funds between this account and that account, et cetera. So the BRIC system is, is a rules-based system. The rules are still emerging, they're still developing but it's really a rules-based, an actual rules-based system for a multipolar world that needs to conduct transactions uh, in and amongst itself. Uh, to your question about what we mean in the West, now, so take that and set that over on one side. The second part of your question is, what do we mean by a rules-based system in the West? Well, I would say there's two, two parts of that. <clears throat> um, one is natural law and the fact that we've pretty much done away with natural law. And forgive me, I can't remember. Austin was one. And I can't remember the other guy who argued for in support of Austin and a removal of natural law. And that is, you know, a law take it out of the church and religious stuff, right? Uh, well, uh, in the contemporary sense, it was HLA Hart. That was Hart, one of his. That's, yep. that's who I meant. That's right. HLA Hart. That's right. And then there was another gentleman. Um, thank you. So, you know, one part is this removal of natural law that there are morals and they're hard-coded and they're real. And whether they're given by God or the church or whatever, I think that's irrelevant. But that there are 
things that are morally right and wrong. When you remove natural law and you don't replace it with something that approximates those hard realities, you wind up with a quote unquote legal system where anything goes. If you can linguistically, logically argue it and out argue or outspend your competitor in that linguistic space. So you wind up with a legal system. So let's take the rules-based thing and legal system, because that's the application of your rules-based system when there's contestation. If you remove natural law or some semblance of natural law that some things are hard and some things are real and some things are morally uh, unacceptable, uh, you wind up with a legal system and a judiciary where anything goes. But I would argue that's an inevitable result of the Judeo-Christian Abrahamic world because, and I'm no scholar in this area, but I almost grew up in Israel and had to study Arabic, uh, or excuse me, um, Aramaic and um, uh, Hebrew and read the, you know, be able to read the Talmud and the, the um, Torah when I was a kid, because that was the requirements to go live in a kibbutz in Israel, in the very area where shit just went down horribly a week or so ago. So I've had an affinity and, and a fascination with the Semitic peoples and the Semitic concepts and ideas by, you know, 50 years on now for 50 some odd years. So I'm no expert, but I've certainly talked to some and interacted with some very successful and very knowledgeable Jewish people and Israelis across the course of my life. One of the conversations that I've had with several of them is, according to Semitic law that was established and codified by Abraham, the eldest son, regardless of legitimacy or any of that, but the eldest recognized son inherits the estates. But in the very first act of Abraham, where there was a litigious, right, a legal act, he broke that and gave the assets to Isaac, the younger son, who was, quote, unquote, the legitimate son of Sarah and all that. But again, under Islam, um, Semitic law at the time, and, you know, please, people can correct me, but from every conversation I've had, um, it didn't matter that Ishmael's mother, and I forget her name, Hannah or whatever, was a concubine or a handmaiden. doesn't matter under Semitic law because that's his biological son. So the whole con, if that is the case, then the whole concept of the rule of law under the Judeo-Christian belief system is itself a lie. Because the very first legal act under formal legal act under that legal system was to ignore the law and pass it over to give the assets to Isaac instead of Ishmael, which is the family feud, right? Because they're all still fighting over the assets of Abraham, right? The Abrahamic estate. And that's been going on for what, roughly 6,000 years, et cetera. But point being is that it's interesting that Constantine would adopt Christianity in the Roman Empire 
if you look at the quote unquote rule of law and natural law being a part of that uh, before Hart and uh, whoever his predecessor was, um, and you look at Roman imperial system, and you look to find <clears throat> why would he do this? Well, if you were in an empire that had demographically changed substantively, where it was not very many Romans, actual Roman Romans, right? And you needed a system that was based off of a very flexible, but very old set of laws, where you as the elites, <clears throat> Abraham, could set aside the law whenever you needed to. So there was a two-tiered legal system. <clears throat> sure makes a lot of sense that Constantine would adopt Christianity, Christianity into the Roman Empire. It's pretty profound. It's pretty, I mean, it, you know, they, they, and it's a total shift, but also, uh, this is something that a lot of uh, fundamentalist Christians, the conversation they have with regard to, to uh, Christian holidays and the accepted Christian calendar, that, that these were actually rooted in, in uh, pagan, Roman, Roman pagan worship. Roman. Yeah. Right. Specifically yeah. in Roman, Roman pagan worship. And then later, uh, some of the Germanic influence was in there as well. We, you yeah, know, the Irish and others. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We, you know, we're, we're coming up on Halloween, which began with Sam Hain, uh, at least in the European tradition, began with Sam Hain, which was a, a Gaelic tradition. And then, you know, of course, we're going into the Christmas season, which, uh, you know, has, has a heavy, heavy Germanic influence in it. Uh, the burning of Yule logs and uh, the the Christmas tree itself is is um, the, well, the, that's these, just good. That's good green ration because well, yeah, you, of course, you go into the country, you know their culture, you know their language. It's good Jesuit right. stuff, which is part of where the Green Berets learn their stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And what do you do? You learn the culture and the language, and they're um, the things that matter most to them and you adapt what you're trying to do and who you are to fit to that to you know find the translation between your neuro-linguistic concept space and these hard points in their neuro-linguistic concept space and tie those together and if you can do that right well now you've created a bridge between these two peoples and then if you, also back to the Jesuits and the Greek praise, if you've got a flexible legal system, right? Flexible, right. morally and otherwise flexible legal system sure makes power and the exercise of power a lot easier. Well, and, and that was a, a central takeaway, at least for me and, and others uh, the, uh, regarding HLA Hart. Um, was that you, you essentially law exists 
for for those in the audience, and there's probably a lot of you out there that, that haven't studied HLA Heart and probably never will, and we won't bore you to get to death with There's some good videos on YouTube, by the way. There, there's a couple there of really are. good videos on yeah, yeah they're on heart. It yeah. it uh it helped me through philosophy of law at, at one point in time. Uh, but uh because it, it you know, there's some abstract concepts here, but in essence, um HLA Hart was in contrast with Ronald Dworkin, who they, they were right. contemporaries of one another. Yeah. Uh, Dworkin yeah. was, was, of course, American, and HLA Hart was British. British. Uh, yeah. But HLA Hart's assertion was that law exists. This is a fundamental question to the philosophy of law. Law exists when it is in congruence with whatever the dominant entity in society believes. So if you believe that, that this, this codification of whatever a rule is, is just and not, you know, not against whatever your system of morality is, then that law is, is a law thus. And if it is in, uh, if it is in conflict with whatever a society's belief system is, then it won't stick around. It, it's going to cause problems. And, and of course, he used several examples of this that, that were um, very interesting. And, and, you know, we can think about this in, in terms of uh, judicial review in America. So in, in the United States, of course, we have a, a large system of, of appellate courts that a lot of the, um, you know, in the gun community, a lot of the uh, decisions that that get promulgated are coming from appellate courts, not the district courts. And of course, whenever we hear about cases of criminality, uh, most recently, I think it was Friday, uh, the, the guy that the you know, cop pulls him over, he gets out, there's a scuffle, guy gets shot. Right. And they say, oh, he he recently had his his case overturned. Well, the news is saying that because they want you to feel sympathetic for this guy. But because his case was overturned does not mean that he did not do what he was accused of doing. And in fact, he probably did. They leave that out because they 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 know this is very clever propaganda. It's it's designed to get you angry and, and mobilize the base is what they want because they're Marxists. But it is it, it it's very very clever, and, and our judicial system is is based around the appellate courts more so than it is the actual courts of justice that are applying the facts of of law. The mala in say you you knew that this was bad, and you did it because thus. Rather, it is a question of whether legal process was observed, and whether the law itself is in conflict with with a value system. So. So the predecessor, <clears throat> excuse me, to heart, to very much what you just articulated, is John Austin, another Brit. Correct. Uh, in the 17 and the 1800s. And John Austin argued that laws are whatever the people, the, the Congress, the parliament, decided they were. Hart came along later and tried to nice that up by saying it was, you know, cultural norms and societal norms that drove Parliament to make those laws. And then, yes, there was validity because of the, you know, the will of the people. But 
Austin wasn't saying that. What Austin was saying, and we have to understand this is um, 100 years or so, 150 some odd years, 160 years after the English Reformation, where power was shifting from the aristocracy and the king to the industrialist and the parliamentarians, um, really after 1685 with uh, William of Orange and um, um, James II's daughter, when they were brought over from uh, Holland to be the constitutional monarchs of England. So what was happening by Austin's time was an attempt to completely remove the natural, the um, mandate of heaven, as the Chinese would say, from the aristocracy and, you know, the nobility and the monarchy and to give that to parliament. But parliament historically through thousands and thousands of years has no mandate from heaven, has no uh, tie or association to natural law. They are an independent, somewhat independent, but they are an emergent property of power itself that has no real validity. And so Austin came along along with others, and he was the, the one who was the legal voice at the time to articulate that the only real legal power presided in parliament in its passing of laws. And the fact that they passed the law is what gave it power. There was no other force that gave the law power than parliament passed it and, and, and uh, funded and enabled the elements of, um, or the instruments of enforcement. And this was Austin's argument that man makes laws, man enforces laws, it is the parliament that does that, parliament is the supreme power and force of the world. And everything in the English speaking world, and now much of the world because of the liberal democracy um, that we've forced down people's throats for the last 80 years, um, uh, are, are Judeo, uh, well, Judeo-Christian, but our um, jurisprudence system has been at the core and heart of that. And Austin's work that there is no power except parliament has been at the heart of all of that. And Hart came along later because that was being attacked because it has no morality, right. right? No core, no base morality, and really has no humanity at all. And it's too easily corrupted. And so Hart came along and tried to give it this imprimatur of humanity, et cetera. And Dworkin was directly, I mean, Dworkin's work, and sorry, I have one of his books around here somewhere. I can't remember the title of it. But Dworkin came along in Hart's time and just tore all that apart. Right. And very well tore it apart. The problem is, is that our entire modern jur jurisprudence system in the West, and therefore how we deal with the rest of the world, is based off of the work of Austin and Hart. And that really is what's the... <laughs> hate to say this, but it's what's at the heart of the problem of Western civilization. So it's not, and this is actually one of the things I'm working on. I've been thinking seriously. I've even applied to law school, uh, although I've talked since to some very 
experienced uh, uh, attorneys and legal scholar friends of mine are like, don't do that. It's useless. Just keep doing what you're doing. But we have to, if we are going to restore Western civilization, it is not Judeo-Christianity that has to be restored because, oh, by the way, that may have been a lie from the beginning anyways. Not that it didn't adopt and co-opt a lot of good things that peoples for thousands of years have figured out on their own about how we should live together. But we do have to restore some semblance of natural law, but not natural laws associated with the Judeo-Christian God and or Judeo-Christian churches, the Abrahamic belief systems and Abrahamic structures. But we do have to restore some semblance of law that we can, or natural law, that we can do now with neuroscience, quality psychology, behavioral quality, behavioral, you know, not the woke is garbage and all of that, which I think is about to get brushed aside in a rush towards fascism and, and straight up Nazism, as we're starting to see already. And uh, as a ch- uh, text and message uh, conversation I had with uh, James Lindsay, uh, who I know months ago, um, we have learned an immense amount, as, as you and I talked about in our last dialogue months ago, in the hard sciences. And I mean the legitimately hard sciences, the real sciences and the real scientific method. We've learned a lot at the cellular level all the way up, also at the physics level in terms of energy uh, distribution, utilization, structure formation, you know, all these things. We've learned an immense amount that we could apply carefully and very diligently and through something that probably approaches the whole federalist fight that happened here in the United States after the Constitution was written. Because people think that the Constitution is the Constitution. They don't realize the Constitution and its interpretation, which is the critical piece, was something that was fought out for another 20, 30 years amongst the great thinkers of the time. The same type of thing has to happen with natural law, where we base it in hard sciences. These things are known. These these are physical properties and functions that happen in nature at these scales. And we need to build that into our law to give it back reality. Because unless our legal, unless we undo heart in Austin, we have no validity in our legal system whatsoever. And we sure as hell can't go out to the rest of the world and preach to them about our rules-based system because the rules-based system we have is whatever the people in the halls of Congress and more importantly, in the arms of of, uh, enforcement, allow it to be. Yeah, I I would... You have no disagreement uh, with regard to law. And one of the things that the conservatives struggle with, and, um, you know, I have have a very deep disagreement with a lot of the laity as as it pertains to the Constitution and constitutionality of things, is that the unfortunate reality is, is, just as you pointed out with HLA Hart and John Austin prior to him, there really is no power other than Congress in the United States, although there is, but when they determine what law is, they're, they're going to, to exhibit lawfare against you 
specifically if you run afoul of that constitutionally or not. Um, and, they don't and, care and about that, the Constitution. They don't, they no. don't care because what Hart gave them in, in the post-Austin era, what Hart gave them was the arguments, the quote-unquote legal arguments to ignore the Constitution. That's actually what Hart was doing. And right. that's what Dworkin, not in the context of, Dworkin was not trying to fight for constitutionality, although he was a supporter of it. What Dworkin was trying to return us to was common law, a true, unfettered British common law that inevitably requires natural law because the first 800-ish, 900,000 years, excuse me, of British common law and its predecessors, the Dane law and Saxon, Saxon Britannic mm -hmm. law, all of that was precedent. And you couldn't throw that precedent out with all of which was based off natural, by the way, and then, you know, principality and king laws as they adapted, et cetera. You could not have a call, an actual common law and throw out 800 years to a thousand years of precedent that was all deeply tied to natural law. That was Dworkin's right. real argument, right? You couldn't have right. the art. You couldn't say that you were a common law system and throw out the first eight hundred to a thousand years of common law, right? And and you, you're exactly spot on. That, that's why HLA Hart has such a focus placed on him in philosophy of law courses. That's that's why that is specifically. That is why that is. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's anyhow, it's Gnostic, that you it's brought Gnostic Hermeticism. Yeah. It's Gnostic Hermeticism, like James Lindsay talks about, where you can say a thing, and if you say it in legalese sounding words, it becomes real. And this is the problem we have in a system that isn't tethered to reality. And the only way to, and we are a law, you know, we are a legal people, you know, a linguistic, legal structured people but you can't have reality you wind up with magic straight up fucking magic if you don't have some semblance of natural law meaning right mor morality is real physics is real chemistry is real <laughs> biology is real you know if you don't have a tethering in reality you don't have law you have magic and witch practitioners and and that's why there's been such a push towards this. You can be eighty different genders. You can correct. you you th correct. this ridiculousness of correct. Uh, the, the arguments that have right it, it, that it, they it's they've magic. come from the intersectional feminist camp, uh, which unfortunately well, this I, predates I, this predates all of that. By the way, this, oh this, of course this, of course yeah, yeah, but th yeah. This is the real push in the United States for it. This is this is why they're doing this because to bring us to HLA Hart, it if if Hart's central thesis is that law exists where it is not in conflict with whatever the predominant uh, morals are, so to speak. When you have uh, w w one of the things that the the left has prided itself upon is this notion of objective morality. That it well, you know, it, uh, morals are objective. Well, relative, moral, well, morals relativism. are not objective. Yeah. Right. Moral morals relativism. are not objective. 
The, the issue with this Hart is, is this, and this is why Hart and Austin at his time were doing Austin was a different reason. Hart was specifically right. for this. <coughs> the truth of the matter is, if you don't have law that is based in hard reality, but is based in the whim of the people and the whim of your people, right? The, the beliefs of your people are evil, then evil is legally right. In the arguments right. of Hart and somewhat in Austin, although Austin, again, was, was trying to break the divine right and the connection of what Austin was trying to do is break status hierarchies, organic status hierarchies. That's what Austin was doing. What Hart was doing is pure Gnostic uh, hermetic magic, and that was to, to resentful stuff, right, from the eternal war. What Hart was doing is pure resentful's eternal war supporting stuff, where if the majority of the people such that you could pass legislation and enforce legislation were evil, then all evil that you did legally was legally sanctioned. And this is fascist, by the way, not fascist. This is Nazi, because fascist is an economic system developed under Benito Mussolini. We need to be very careful. You know, Nazis were socialists whose economic system failed. And then they went to Benito. Hitler went to Benito and his banking and economic people went to the Italians and said, well, how's this fascism stuff work? Because our national socialist economic financial system isn't working. And... They needed the Italians and the Axis powers because of geography and uh, manpower, um, technology and other things. And so they went and adopted fascism. What we're dealing with on the heart and other side is Nazism, right? right? And so that's the central tenet of heart and what's carried on since then is as long as you can get the laws, the evil laws passed, the malevolent laws passed that allow you to legally, again, under the Hart and Austin uh, framework, non-natural law framework, to then enforce malevolent laws that have been passed, properly passed, right, as city ordinances or county or, you know, whatever it is, or, or, or federal laws, then it's all permissible, no matter what it is. Like in Canada right, right now, where their recommend, you know, where uh, euthanasia is becoming more and more of a thing, where they're recommending instead of social services and helping people out and and helping people with mental health, it's uh, well, have you thought about state-assisted suicide? That's all. This is where heart. This is the whole where the whole concept and idea of heart leads. Right. And unfortunately, Austin is the one that set, really set that in motion, and he was supported to do that for a different reason by the industrialists and the parliamentarians who were taking control of every aspect of civilization society starting in the late 1700s uh, and into the mid-1800s and really took off you know, this uh, last century. But that's really what it's about, and it has to be undone. And, and some form of natural law has to be reestablished where some things are fucking evil and malevolent. And I don't care if you pass that law, that law gets struck down. The problem is, is that virtually everybody in our legal system, particularly those in the appellate courts as you talk about and elsewhere, but not everybody, not everybody, but by far too many folks 
primarily in the district attorney's office, which is almost all heart people, yep. and in the uh, court systems, the judiciary itself, unfortunately, there are too many heart adherents because it gives a prosecutor, a district attorney, a prosecutor, and a judge ultimate power in the world. And this is the other thing that people don't realize. People don't realize how much power the judiciary has obtained. Everybody's looking at the president and all the executive orders and all. Yeah, right. you, don't, you don't have a fucking clue what the real threat is. The real threat is the judiciary. And if, again, if you read the founding fathers, and I, I wrote a post about this today on, on Twitter as well. If you look at the reason that the colonists went to civil war, it's because they could not get their grievances addressed in the court system. Right. That's where they went first as good Brits. And they could not get their grievances addressed in the court system. And then the court system turned against them, against the oligarchs. And so what wound up happening? The oligarchs realized the only way any of us are going to be preserved is we have to go to war. Just like it happened, you know, 100 and, you know, back in the 1620s to 1640s. There has to be a power structure that backs one faction over another. That That's the thing that a lot of people, they, they, the whole Civil War mantra in the United States has been bannered back and forth. And it's an inevitability, yes. It, it, they, we, we are incompatible. Are it's we're a good segue good. into the, the next thing I was going to ask you, but we're, we're careening yeah. towards that. We're, we're really careening towards what, what I think. We, oh, absolutely. We, we're in yeah, we're, we're totally it, and and it's not a cold civil war that we're in. It's very much a hot civil war. It's just no, one I faction. It's still cold. It's, no, it's still cold. It's still uh, cold. We we well. It's had its good. It's had its goon moments, but it, it's trust yeah. me on this one, bro. When it goes hot, it's a whole different thing. Oh, it's a no, absolutely, thing. absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, we we don't have the sectarian violence yet. Uh, we haven't we haven't necessarily slid into the. Uh, overt phase of the insurgency pyramid. We're, but we're right there. We're, we're you know, five, and I've mentioned six. this. Yeah, the the no. the resistance pyramid uh, that that you know people have heard me talk about this ad nauseum. I know you're intimately familiar with it. Yeah. So sorry, you're going to ask questions. So let me let you. Ask so wait, so our, our our shift from Marxism into fascism. In the United <laughs> States, we're, we're yeah. you, you've mentioned it a couple of times on this podcast yeah, already. And, and you're yeah, exactly right. We, we, yeah. we, you know, we're it, it's very fascinating sociologically to watch the shift that's happened on the left that, that's been, um, They're uh, both it, on the left, by the way, just absolutely, absolutely. This, this slash fascism and and communist Marxism are both on the left. Absolutely. The, 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 the United States and Israel in, in a contemporary sense, this is a very interesting uh, conflict that, that's un, that, that is unfolding as we speak. And, and it's a social conflict as much as it is a, a military one. When you look at the social dynamics and it's, it's way, way deeper than 
jihadis wanting to do jihadi stuff, and this is way deeper than that. It's a um, six thousand year old family feud. Absolutely, over the fact and, that the founding father went against his own laws that he taught his children at the very beginning. And then the argument that's been raging for 6,000 years, what the hell's the validity of the family anyways? Right? Well, this, this whole rules-based right. system, this legal system that's keeping one side, the sons and daughters of Ishmael, out of the inheritance, the full inheritance of the family, which is what Islam was founded over to, to push back against. I mean, just read the bloody Quran. Right. But, it right. was their declaration of war against the sons of Yitzhak and the supporters of the sons and daughters of Yitzhak as a way to try and take their inheritance. It, right. It's a legal fight, it, very much to the heart and Austin conversation. And, and uh, uh, forgive me, I forgot the other gentleman's name was on the other side. Um, uh, anyways. It's very much to the heart non-Austin conversation. The Semitic peoples have been having a fight for 6,000 years. Are we a law-based law people? Is our culture and civilization, is our family heritage based off of law, or is it free-for-all and anything goes? Or does one part of the family get to do whatever the hell it wants and dictate to the other part of the family using the supposed laws that they themselves didn't adhere to from the very beginning. It is well, a Hart and Austin argument. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and where I was going with it, though, from a secular mm -hmm. point of view, is, and, 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 and I mean, it, it, it's, it, because this is, uh, it's a very deeper, very broader, uh, multi-dynamic, multi-level approach to, to viewing all this, making sense of the world. Uh, world. But from a, a secularist point of view, the American left, and, and where I was going with the, the, the Israeli, Hamas, Hezbollah, gotcha. Iranian, the current where, where this is going, the, uh, how, it's, yeah. how it's, it's, it's boiling down. But regardless of that, what we're seeing is the American left Particularly the American left. That's Western. why I find it so Western. so funny that, right? Well, we, in the West in general, of course, but yeah, yeah, you know yeah. the, the anecdotes that, that I can point to are specifically from here in America. Um, it's just very funny that that we've been told and sold on this lie. Well, some of us have been sold. Some segment of the American populace has been sold on this lie. This myth of the you know there's a white supremacist boogeyman behind every rock. You know that that's gonna in the magic MAGA people are gonna overthrow the capital, which is just an asinine uh, assumption. By I mean, it's, it's absurd on its face. This is what our our power structure has been telling us, and now we have the American left specifically, and in the West in general, right? But specifically the American left that is they entered the capital. They breached the White House. They breached the White House. Waving Palestinian flags. And a lot of these people were Jewish. You have to point that out, too. You can't, can't be remiss and to point out Jews. reality. They're they absolutely Jews. were. We were calling for a ceasefire. The only time you call for a ceasefire, it's like a timeout. In football, we got to call timeout. Because you're getting your ass kicked. And so you, you have to regroup. 
Um, you know, I, uh, Matt Williams from Knightsbridge, uh, podcast that, that we did, uh, uh, last Thursday, he pointed out something that I hadn't considered was that Hamas did not know how effective they were going to be and didn't, they, they assumed that they weren't going to be as effective as, as they became. And so they weren't necessarily ready for all of the repercussions that, that have come about. Maybe it, it is an interesting perspective, but, but where I'm going with this is well, when, when the, I, when the five eyes I see is doing an operation, we don't allow our puppets to know everything that we're doing. Right. No. So it, it, and that's, this is, the, this is being used. That's right. But that's just that's right. I'm just and, putting that out there as a, you know, that's a thing that our, happens. Our, our shift from Marxism in the blue hives, so to speak. I think that you called it the, the blue churches. Blue church. Yeah. yeah. The blue church earlier today. I think Michigan is a perfect example of this. There's lots of them all across the United States, you know, here in North New Carolina, we, we got plenty of New York. Yeah. Oh goodness. Tampa, Florida, yeah. Tampa, Florida, uh, which demographically in Tampa, Florida is, you know, there's a very large Jewish population that lives there. Um, which is very interesting. That's kind of a Skokie, Illinois type scenario that unfolded there. It was interesting to watch. But the the shift from Marxism to fascism, and in particular, uh, <laughs> we're, 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 but Nazism specifically. And so we've been That's told this, this lie that, you know, there's a white supremacist boogeyman, you know, that anybody that has a dissenting opinion is, is literally Hitler. Uh, that Trump was literally Hitler, which was absolutely ridiculous. And now here we have Michigan State University during a football game. Spartan. They've ate off Hitler up on their Titan Tron. And, and you know, th this is so fascinating to me in all the wrong ways that. Shouldn't surprise you. No, I, I no, no it does not surprise me. Does not I, I surprise had this me. literal. I don't know if you know who James Lindsay, conceptual James is yeah. on. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. So I know James uh, for a couple of years now. And every once in a while, if something comes clear to me, I'll, I'll and I'm, I'm watching his stuff because he does great work and I have a lot of respect for what he does, immense respect. Um, but every once in a while, when I'll see his stuff going by and then I'll kind of figure something out as an unconventional warfare guy and as an old British family guy, right? on. Ping him and say, hey, man, I think this is something you might want to look at or um, here's how I'm interpreting this thing. And one of the things that he and I that I that I pinged him with months ago is probably I couldn't tell you now, six, seven months ago was we're about we're about to make the transition from Marxist left to Nazi left. And the sign of that is going to be little subtle things. That's actually, this would have been over a year ago. It's going to be subtle little Nazi Hitler, Himmler things that pop up here and there, apparently randomly, but really they're not random. They're not, they're not planned, right? It's not, it doesn't work that way. But if you look at 1920s Germany, and how the Nazis rose to power in the first place, funded by us, by the way, and look at 
look at yep. uh, the funding from Rockefeller and uh, J.P. Morgan in particular. It's all public knowledge, by the way. It's all public information, travel records. Just uh, like with the Bolsheviks. Yeah, well, that was the Germans in particular to um, destroy the Russian uh, monarchy on behalf of the British monarchy because of a Saxe Saxe-Cobra, right? The, the the family feud in the European royal houses. But point back back to the Nazi stuff. I, I was messaging with James, and you know he was kind of seeing the same thing, right? This potential shift and. I had been studying for the eternal war. So again, this, this would have been over a year, year and a half ago. I've been studying this, you know, how did the Nazis come to power? What was the mindset, the mind frame, what were the steps, et cetera? What the Nazis did with our backing and support uh, and others, the Brits, were uh, to support Marxist movements um and a breakdown and decay in german society and civilization by this you know free love and anything goes exactly like it's been happening in the last 20 or so years here 20 years ago here such that the german people were in a place to where they felt genuinely afraid for their own safety because there was there was communist violence let's not diminish that right let's not give the nazis you know uh validity because of it but there was straight up you know uh communist violence terrorism etc right the nazi argument was that we are the you know we're all about our civilization we're all about our culture we're all about our people and by letting the communists go too far as, as, as a resentful faction and the communist Marxist resentful faction wants to break everything and remake it using Gnostic hermetic language, you know, magic language, right? right. Um, to speak things into reality and being. The Nazis were on the other side and they're still leftists and they still want total and absolute control, but unlike the communists, the Marxists, the Nazis want to take total and absolute control of every aspect of wealth and money and power generation in order that they can build their own sense of utopia, which isn't a thing that's on the other side of breaking and destroying everything but it's on the other side of excising and cutting out all the things that aren't pure and whole. And that's how the Nazis came to power. It sure as hell what's been going on over the last 20 years in the United States, right down to the part yeah. of genital mutilating children. And so you're naturally going to get a reaction from the people, which is ushering in what appears to be conservatism, but isn't. It's Nazism. It's it's a lie of conservative. It's a totalitarian control, resentful system that wears the mask and face of conservatism. You have to get enough people in your populace scared enough legitimately for them and their children and their children's children 
that they will allow the Nazis to rise to power and look the other way as the Nazis put in place their ultimate solution to the problem, which is genocide. And it's genocide of the undesirables list, which hasn't changed at all since the 1920s. And we can see that. We can hear it. We can see it. We often think about, you know, we have to take a step back and really think about where did all the trillions of dollars that the Nazis took go? Didn't go back to the people they took it from. What happened with all the top level Nazis? Not all of them, but a good number and the far greater part of them. They were brought into the United States and the British bureaucratic system under Operation Paperclip. Why? Because they were really, really capable, knowledgeable bureaucrats. So what was going to be the inevitable result of that? Right, Clausewitz said this 200 years ago, 200 plus years ago. Sorry about that, (laughs) cats. No, Um, you're fine. Clausewitz said that wars are never won, they just change phase. Right. So what do we think? Do we beat the Nazis? No. No, we brought them in. We brought them in and we put them into positions of power and they built our medical industry, modern medical industry. They built our space industry. They built banking systems. They were heavily involved in the, in the, the formation of the CIA in the National Institute of Health, in the National Science Foundation. This is all public record, right? This is literally all the receipts are out there. Ostensibly, it was to defeat the communists, the Russians. Well, we've been fighting, the British peoples have been fighting the Russians forever because that's been our big whatever fucking existential threat. And the reality is it's a family feud there as well because the Russian czars were the first cousins to the kings of England. And, you know, as a diehard Brit and a monarchist, that's one of the greatest stains on us British people is that we didn't support our cousins in Russia, like we're doing fucking now, by the way. But the point is, is that it is ludicrous and idiotic for us to think that the Nazis wouldn't go for the Fourth Reich. Well, absolutely. Uh, absolutely, and and we what do you see think the world economic? What is the world economic forum? Exactly, it's the Fourth Reich. It's the framework for the Fourth Reich, literally established by the son of a top advisor to Hitler. Now, I did not know that. Look at Europe's leaders right now. It's it's out there. Klaus Schwab's father was one of it was a doc, a medical doctor, and he was one of Hitler's top advisors. Look at the other people who are, quote, unquote, uh, EU leaders. Look at their ancestry. Look at Ukraine. Azov Battalion's a very real thing. Look at the Waffen-SS in Ukraine during World War II. Look up, and it's hard to find this information now. It wasn't so hard 20 years ago, but look up Operation Odessa, Project Odessa which was the program that the Nazis put in place in 1938 into 1939, right before they finalized, before they launched into Poland, 
which was specifically a program specifically set up to launder the money stolen to date, and it would be stolen in the war, and to provide a pipeline to move top Nazis out of Europe, around the world, when Germany lost the war, as the Nazis knew they would. The physical war. Yeah. So. And now, of course, Hamas. we have. Look at Hamas. Yep. Look at. Uh, um, That's exactly what I was saying. about to mention. When, look when at you Hamas look at. The founding. Yeah. Yep. The, the um, Waffen SS, the um, Arab Brigade of the uh, Waffen SS. And look yep. at the founder. Look at the founder of. Hamas, look at the founders of the PLO, look at the founders, right? This isn't a label to the Palestinian people, by the way. I know a lot of Palestinian people who are very successful. I mean, very successful, very brilliant, very capable people, and I love them to death. And I have immense respect for them and their families. So I'm not trying to label the, the Palestinian people at all, not at all. In fact, these are a people, particularly the poors, Forgive the term, but that's the case. The poors have been stuck in this horrible situation, again, by us Brits and English-speaking people for over 100 years. There's a lot different way we could have dealt with that, not just at the beginning in the 19-teens and 1920s, at the end of World War I, and even actually be before that in the 1800s, because all people don't realize the whole nation of Israel actually started in the late 1800s, the whole process, the whole movement, etc., so That's there's right. a lot of things we could have done, but we wanted the poors, the Palestinian poors, which, by the way, there's no such thing as Palestinians. They're not an ethnic group of people. That's a thing that when Judea was destroyed in um, 60, 60, whatever it was, A.D., Rome renamed the area that had been Judea, Syria, Palestine. So there isn't even you know, this whole argument. Anyways. I don't want to go down that rabbit no, hole. No, 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 no. The point it, is, this isn't about... people don't get. Well, they don't, and they need to really study it. We've created this horrible situation for what we now call the Palestinian peoples. But the ones we're really looking at are the poor Palestinian peoples, the uneducated, poor, etc. But if you look at the leadership of the PLO, the leadership of Hamas... Hezbollah and others. It isn't Iran, as everybody keeps pointing to. It's not to say that they didn't fall in on somebody else's resources and assets, as did the Israelis with Hamas. But if you look at, at those organizations founding and the Ba'athist Party, holy shit, I mean, look at the Ba'athist Party itself, <laughs> right? Yeah. What yeah. you wind up with is you you learn or you you remember or you learn very quickly that there was a huge Nazi Waffen-SS presence, not just in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe, but in the Middle East. And the folks that are carrying on this fight, the bad fight, not the, not the legitimate fight, or the legitimate resistance and seeking of grievance, uh, addressing of grievances, those people are real and they're there. And they, we call a lot of them Palestinians now, and they have a justifiable right to address grievances. But the ones that are doing the horrible shit, all of them trace back to Nazi Germany. 
and you don't have to dig, you know, real hard. And, you know, what's that uh, meme where the guy's standing and he's got a pen in his hand. There's all the images behind him of the string, you know, that attaches this to this, to this, to this, you know, and he's, I can't remember. Oh, funny oh, meme. oh, Char talking about Charlie Day. But, Is that uh, it? It's always sunny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but anyway. Charlie's conspiracy guy. theories. Yeah, yeah, the conspiracy yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's not, you don't even have to go through that level. It's just like, go get on Wikipedia. It's out there. Not that we can completely trust. Go to Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica, right? Um, so back to your initial question. If we look at the world, the Western world today, the all of the conditions for the ushering in of the Fourth Reich, of, and it won't start that way, but of the Nazis that were put in positions of power in the West due to Operation Paperclip and its equivalents elsewhere, that's all happening. And what will happen, So, and here's why, at least in my, from my study and my estimation, here's why. English-speaking peoples, while we have, excuse me, useful idiots, et cetera, that fall for communism, communism, Marxism, doesn't work on us. It only works on former imperial peoples. And we are a monarchical people. And monarchical peoples fall for Nazism, for fascism. Imperial systems, Russians, Chinese, Cambodians, Vietnamese, and others fall for communist, the resentfuls, right? The resentfuls lies right. of Marxism, which we know is Marxism today, and it was something else before Marx. Imperial peoples are susceptible to that linguistic set of lies. Monarchical peoples are susceptible to the resentfuls linguistic set of lies of fascism slash Nazism. And again, as a diehard Brit, right, monarchist, etc. holy fuck, look at all the people that supported Hitler and the Nazis in the aristocracy and even in the royal family, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it, that, and, and that's one of those realities that, you know. Yeah, not we, to we, label the current royals as Nazis, by the way. I'm going to be very careful. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Well, Harry, Harry's not a not a royal anymore. So, <laughs> in my estimation, he's still he's still a prince. I know, I know. And Harry, Mar to... Harry married Harry married wrong, and and there are other oh, things going on with Harry that I won't say. Yeah, but yeah. let's just say that anybody who served in a combat zone with impact type injuries should look at Harry with a different lens. And I'm just yeah. putting that out there. Okay. No, I, I've pointed that out too. That that in the in the internal conversations, it's important you bring that up. He he. Uh, I have a, a very close friend of mine who served with him at uh, the oh. same combat outpost in in Helmand. Uh, yeah. And this this gentleman is in the Marine Corps, and uh, <clears throat> no, he he had nothing but but great things to say. Uh, He's about a Harry Windsor. But yeah, it's and, just again for guys like us. Because right. I don't want to say too much, because I know some people that have made correct direct connections, shall we say. But 
Harry yeah. is dealing with some of the things that we have dealt with ourselves. Yep. And tried to use his position as a prince to help certain people and was told no and might have not been in the emotional excitatory inhibitory capacity to not lose his shit over it. And then once you lose your shit over realizing you don't really have any power to help people who've done real things, what path might you go down to? More important in his case, what type of person might you be susceptible to? Right. So not to give his royal highness a pass at all. And he's going to have to harder, hopefully he wakes up one day and starts the harder the path of hard earning his way back but he is still a prince i think that's very well said uh, very well they that's it's 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 interesting because we've never had this conversation before no um and it Not it's it and my my take on him and it, it was just an off-the-cuff comment is you know he he harry particularly had a uh an incident before his military service that that I think made the tabloid news, and uh, you know was was quite, created quite a stir. But no, it, my uh, assessment of him is is very much in the same, knowing what I know um, from a, a, a very close personal a, and, and trusted friend that that served. He's a, a brother who's struggling, like a lot of yeah. our other brothers are. He's yep. a prince, right? Prince, my prince. But he is a man that is a human being that is also struggling with the same problem, small handful of problems that a lot of us are. Yeah. But he's got a whole lot more pressure on him than any of us do. And again, not to give his Royal Highness pass, but I said this in a comment to somebody else the other day. Actually, I think it was a couple of months ago or something, but I think it's actually a, a meme I created and put up there. But the great burden that princes and kings have to bear is that nobody understands the burden that they are bearing for us. They don't understand the fights that they're engaged in, this all-out conflict, you know, the sport of kings conflict space that they're engaged in on behalf of us. And if they make the slightest misstep or the slightest mistake, they themselves can get destroyed. Again, not to give us more highness a pass. No, 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 no. It, it, you know, history is fraught with those tales of, yes. of yes. successful monarchies that were handed off to the unsuccessful and the unfit. Right. And, and, but what's never told is the fight to maintain that fight. You know, the sword of Damocles is, 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 is very, very, uh, very, very real. Yeah. Very good. It happened in my own family, my own family when I was a child. Right. The, and this was somewhat external um, machinations by the trust executors, but the fight that was internal was the one that finally brought down my mother when I was a kid and ultimately would cost us uh, her estate and inheritance. 
So the, and, and I didn't understand, this is a conversation I've had with some other people as well. You know, I've, I've, I've tried, this also led to the eternal war, right? The book I wrote, um, trying to understand why really successful families are so fucking unbelievably, ruthlessly, brutally horrible to one another. And it took me a lot, it took me decades of hard study and research and, and interacting with these families and, and dealing with my own families full from grace and influence and wealth to realize that if you can't handle that internal ruthless brutal fight of your own family, you shouldn't have any say over the family's estate because that's what you're going to deal with out there in the world. Right. Yeah, and, and this is something that we commonly see in the the entertainment industry that writes these these soap operas about yeah, you know, yeah, all the yeah. primetime yeah, soap yeah. operas. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. but that yeah. when you boil it all down, that that's what it's about. That's what each yeah. of them are about. You know, it's the, a testing. The, it's a testing ground. You know, Yellowstone. Yeah, Yellowstone yeah. is is that same it. story. Yeah, yeah. Well, you didn't miss anything. But it well somebody somebody about a year ago maybe it was two years ago we we a friend of mine we we were doing one of the live shows and uh, he's like oh I haven't seen that is is it good it's no no it's terrible it's it's a show that is filmed like it would be really good when you look at it visually it's very impressive so it's a modern show so it's a modern right. show but but the story is absolute trash it's, it's that's why trash. I stopped watching. Uh... Succession, right? Because I deal with family offices. That's another one. I net worth That's and wealthy, one. very wealthy families. And I've even worked with royal families, several royal families around the world over the years. And um, somebody kept saying, yeah, you got to watch Succession. I, I watched one part of one episode. I was like, yeah, this is garbage. Yeah. Right? Trash. It's garbage. Yeah. It's, it, it, succession was, is, is a thinly veiled story. So about the Murdochs and it it's it, it's a slander it's not even well told. Yeah, it's exactly exactly it's a fucking hit piece yeah, yeah. that it's, doesn't it, get to the nuance uh, of the reality at all yeah. and 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 there's no there's no intelligent writing that goes into any of that stuff i no, mean no. we but but where i was going with that statement in the entertainment no. industry yeah, there was yeah. a a particularly good scene from a show that was really well done when we actually did write good stories mm. and there was original or somewhat original things on TV that actually entertained us. And it came from Dallas. Um, oh, and, I love that know, show. That was a good yeah, show. It, it, you know, Jock Ewing was the, the patriarch and, you know, you're familiar with it, yeah. but just you yeah. know, setting the scene up. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of this war between the two sons of, of yeah. you know, who, who is going to take over this war industry and everything. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. one is is very just and you know a nice guy, and the other one is is you know ruthless and, and conniving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so they're having this this internal fight, and uh, you know the the younger son, the the more straight arrow guy, yeah. Uh, yeah. says, you know, hey, you you gave me the authority to buy this refinery, and Jock Ewing says. To, to Bobby is the character he says to him. He, he says, no, I didn't give you anything. You know, you, you power isn't given to you. Power is something yeah. you take. And that's, th that, that is really 
um, an important Bing. concept that a lot of people don't get. So like what's you, happening? You don't in the world get a today. damn thing if it's given to you. What's happening in the world today? The boomers need us to, and the few remaining silent need us to take power from them. And I don't mean violence in the streets and all of that, but no one who has power ever gives it up willingly because if they do, they know that power is going to get just destroyed and dissipated. You have to take the power from them. And again, I don't mean violence in the streets. I mean, sometimes that's necessary. It's not for me to people, not up for people like me to decide. But we are not going to get through this problem that we are in with in Western society by waiting for them to give us fucking power. They will burn the world to the ground before they die rather than give it to the next generation. And the honest truth is they're right to do so. Well, they, the boomer generation is doing a very good job of it. And that statement's going to piss some people <laughs> off. But There's some silent around too, by the way. So let's not just put this all on the boomer generation. Because oh, I, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. It, it's, it's, they, as a generation, and, and, you know, this is, this is the truth here. As a generation, they were very content to give away a lot and then sit back and complain about it. Uh, and one of those things that they gave away was morality. It, it became objective well, this under is their how, watch. You know, Strauss and Howell, right? That's it's the the uh, prophet generation, right? And the prophet generation calls into question all the norms and uh, all the acceptable ways of doing things, and then preaches a new way of doing things, and in the process breaks everything. So. You know, Strauss and Howell laid that out pretty well. I don't know if you read Strauss's since passed away. May he rest in peace. Neil Howell wrote the follow-on book called The Fourth Turning is Here. Have you read that or listened no. to it? No. I, I highly recommend it for both you and your audience. It, it's a recap of um, The Fourth Turning, but then he goes into much more detail about the crisis phase and he's been having some you know he's a top advisor to some hedge fund guys that i know and so i run across his not him i've not met him but you know i run across his conversation uh with these guys and his dialogue now is you know because everybody you know all the money guys and Everybody's like, well, you know, we can, we're smart. We can break history. We can get out of this without a fight. He's like, well, maybe, but no fourth turning ever in history has ever not had a war. Right. And not a little brush war, but a major conflagration. So you can go ahead and think that you're smarter than thousands of years of history. And maybe you are. But probably what's happened is you're just delaying. And what happens when you delay paying a debt? And interest is compounding. When the violence does come, it's really, really bad. It's in a shorter period. But it's We're orders of magnitude worse than it should be or needed to be. And yes, we are. And this gets back to your transition from Marxist resentfuls to straight up Nazi resentfuls. What do Nazi, res okay, 
if you have four to five quadrillion dollars in debt, which is what the West, the Euro dollar system actually has for derivatives and all public and private debt, forget the $33 trillion. That's nothing compared to the real debt. How do you deal with that? Especially with an entire generation that's aging out and going on to uh, pensions and um, retirement and uh, their most expensive medical years. Well, if I've got liabilities that are that this size and assets that are really real pricing this size, and those are orders of magnitude, liabilities higher than assets, I got to remove my liabilities. But in human financial systems, what are the liabilities? Humans, living human beings. So what do you got to do? to lessen and lower your liabilities so that they come back into some X multiple value of your assets that are now correctly priced or closer to correctly priced. You gotta liquidate liabilities, which means you gotta kill a lot of people. And that's what the Nazis did. That's what the Soviets did. That's what the Maoist Chinese did. That's what Pol Pot did. It's not like this isn't known fucking knowledge. That's what was happening. They were erasing liabilities, obligations, right? Financial obligations. We're in the same place. So who is it they're going to erase? Well, if it's the Nazis that come in, it's going to be all the Marxists. It's going to be all the same undesirables. Like I look at the black community and I have numerous very successful black people I know several very good friends, some of which I grew up with, by the way, pretty fucking amazing people, and they're pissed. Yeah. They're pissed off right now because they see their own community being set up and there ain't nothing they can do about it, right? Like these, you know, I just moved from San Francisco. Sadly, it breaks my heart to leave my, my own town. Uh, I was finally able to get my daughter out of there, and, and now I'm out as well as of this week. But these black kids that are you know, black people that are running into the stores and stealing all this, they're being set up. Yeah. They're being set the fuck up, man. For horrible shit to come down on them. And I well, hate they, they've been they've been sold a bad bill of goods too. And well, it, they've been told it's, they're it's inferior, tragic. that they're they've been told that they're inferior, that they, they can't equate, they can't live. They've been sold a lie. Like all poors, by the way, because this isn't just the black community. This is all poors throughout history. They're sold a lie. You can't be anything more. You you need us to take con control. And you need us to be in control and take care of things for you because you're not, you know. And then anytime you need a scapegoat, what do you do? You amp them up so they go too far. And then you scapegoat and dump everything on them. It's the right. eternal war, man. This has played out thousands of fucking years. You can see it, not just in humans, by the way. You can see it in monkey fucking troops. and I mean, you can see it in other species. The same bullshit fucking behavior plays out in other social species. So it's not unique to humans. It's just we're really, really nasty with it. Indeed we are. And and it's it's going to get worse, unfortunately. Before it gets better, but it'll always get better at some point. It's it's always gonna end. You're funny. <laughs> well, you know, I, um, you gotta put on this. I have immense. I, I have a. Give me a second.
I'm actually an immensely positive person. I have immense confidence in the human species. I hope we we get to some kind of a knockdown drag out fight and get this shit over in four to five years like the English speaking people actually normally always do. And we don't fall for the way in which the Eastern peoples do this very housekeeping thing because that's four generations. The good thing about the English speaking peoples is again, like every 400 years, like bloody clockwork, we go through the same thing. But what we do, unlike the rest of the world, is we get it over in four to five year bloodbath. And we rewrite the laws and we rebalance power, put in new structures that rebalance power between the oligarchs, the bureaucrats slash priests and the people. And we do it in a four to five year, eight year slog. And it's brutal and it's ugly and it's fucked. A lot of people die and a lot of everything gets broken or most everything gets broken. But we do it. And because we do it in that way, more of us survive. It's why our monarchy is a thousand years old. It's why the English speaking people or the the dominant business people are happening until the last 30 years. it's why we still survive as a real power and player in the world with a fraction of the world's population. Because we go through these break it all, rebuild it alls in a very short period of time, whereas others do in a single generation, right? Not the whole generation, a part of a single generation, we deal with it. And then we grab the pieces of our history and our past and the things that work and we reassemble them and we update, etc. Most other societies and civilizations in the world, primarily in the East, take four generations to do it. Well, what happens? Most of what, who and what they were gets destroyed and lost forever. The only three peoples that that hasn't happened to, and the only reason it hasn't there is because of the thousands, and I mean thousands of years of history, is the Persians, Iranians, the Chinese, and thereby the Japanese. And, well, Japan, you're going to take Japan out. Japan's an anomaly because of the islands uh, in isolation. It's the Chinese, the Persians, which Iranians really are down underneath. They are still Persians and the Russian Slavs, primarily the, the uh, Kievan Rus, right? The Russian Slavs. And they're not thousands of years in Kievan Rus. They're about a thousand some odd years. So they're a lot more like the British, um, what we call British, because most of what we call British today are not ethnically British. We killed most of those fuckers uh, a thousand years ago, <laughs> 700 years or uh thousand to third over third you know over a 300 year period of time or so we displaced and killed both those so what we call british today are germans and celts and uh scandinavians uh, etc um but those are the only you know three civilizations now the the crazy thing is that the russians uh the kievan rus they do the three or four generations but their culture is so strong and so powerful uh, and is Slavic, by the way. Slavic culture goes back way before all Western civilization. People don't realize that Greek mythology and Scandinavian mythology are exactly the same. They just change the names, etc., because they come from the same ethnic root. And that ethnic root is Slavic. 
So out of the Caucasus mountains, uh, mountains, et cetera. So um, people don't understand when they look at Russians today, they think Kievan Rus about a thousand years, they don't realize, no, the Russian peoples, which is a, also a broad spectrum of peoples, are thousands of years old. They're closer to the Chinese um, in terms of the longevity of their cultural, actual cultural heritage than anybody else on earth. I can't speak to Africa. There may be, you know, communities and stuff in Africa, but I don't know enough about that to, to uh, make that same assertion. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and we are a, uh, a Xi Jinping. And I think that this is a, a, a great uh, stopping point for now before we, you know, conclude and then we you know, got to have you back on because there's there's another thing that I want to get to. Uh, mm-hmm. But but as Xi Jinping referenced uh, the West as the brief moment in time. And I think that uh, recently within the past uh, it might be two months now, um, he was given a speech and he referenced us as the brief moment in time. And I think that encapsul- encapsulates your point. Uh, perfectly because we are, you know, in, in the big scheme of things, uh, sociologically, we are a brief moment in time and, and a unique one in many ways, but, but certainly a brief moment. Uh, so uh, if I might, before you go before ahead, you include, I've spent a lot of time in Asia, uh, in China in particular, and I've lived in China, I've lived in Japan, I've worked in both. Uh, I speak Korean. I studied Japanese and I speak like a child uh, and my Chinese is even worse, but I've studied as well. And I studied Chinese and Japanese history for much of my life. So as much as a Westerner can perhaps, and there's others way more than me, I, I, I kind of get them. I studied Russia when I was younger. I wanted to be the U.S. ambassador to Russia. I was on my way to Georgetown. They had me in the Wall School of Foreign Service once upon a time. And then I wound up in the hospital with pancreatitis for some unknown reason they never figured out. Uh, and that kind of derailed those plans. So I spent a good amount of time studying Russian, Slavic, mostly Russian history and culture. And I grew up with Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and uh, Tchaikovsky and, you know, much love for that literary um, intellectual history there. I am deeply British. My mother's a Wallace on the Scottish side. My father... I think we know who my father is. My mother is being a little suspect about it, uh, but he's English. But both sides are Scandinavian English, right? Came across. But I'm in my heart and in my my sensibilities. I am about as British as they come. I was born here in America and raised in America, etc. But to a uh, foreign parents, um, I think, given the way histories of peoples play out, that the English speaking peoples are not a brief period in time. Our time where we dominated the world is brief. But if we can remember who we are, truly who we are, we have all of the components and pieces to be a multi-millennial 
society and civilization, and I mean civilization, and actually Putin talks to this, right, about civilizational peoples, and he says we are a civilizational people. And I don't mean all of Europe, etc., but I believe very firmly that if we, the English-speaking peoples, can get through this mess that we've created and we do have to deal with, that we will continue as a civilizational people and not be just a brief moment in time. And I'll give you a prime example. Our crown has been worn by the same family for a thousand years. We are already a civilizational people because peoples historically across the world who are a brief moment in time at their longest extent never lived beyond 300 years. And we're already beyond three times that. We are already a civilizational people and we need to not. And by the way, this isn't all white people. I say English speaking people for a reason, right? It's a thing, and we also got to understand the Russian peoples are not all ethnically white Russians. Their civilization encompasses many ethnicities. China is a civilizational people of 1,400 different ethnicities. So we got to understand this isn't a white thing. It is an English-speaking thing, a native English-speaking thing, and we are already a civilizational people and can continue as such if we can remember that and work ourselves through this and, and deal with our problems. And we have many problems, but we can address these. We've been through this before. Hey Amen. I, I think that was incredibly well put. Uh, and it, it encapsulates a, a lot of my thoughts on the matter as well. But brother, how can people find you? Right. So through you, of course, um, when they can get you because you're so busy running around the woods with uh with nugs <laughs> not nods and nugs uh and noobs. yeah nods yeah. And, nugs and noobs. that's yeah yeah that should be a course you course you teach um <laughs> but through you uh probably the best way is through twitter my name em Game at twitter again i'm on linkedin uh, i still have a presence on linkedin i'm, I'm rarely there i maybe go on it once a week you can go to the shoulderinggiants.locals.com. That's where As Rome Burns is. That's the novel I'm writing around all of these concepts and ideas in a novel, entertaining way. You can find me on Medium and Substack where I'm serializing that novel as well. But probably the best is on Twitter. It's where I have most of my interactions. And then you can look for the books on, again, by my name on uh, Amazon. Right on, brother. It is always good to sit down. It, this was a, I had originally planned on an hour, and now we're we, you know we're over an hour and a half. It's oh, but it's geez. it's a breath of fresh air to sit with an original thinker and and be able to expound upon all of these ideas, these generational ideas, civilizational ideas, and it challenges the status quo. You know, and and if for nothing else. To the listeners, and I know based on the the last episode that we did and the huge response uh, that that came out of it, if for nothing else, is, is changing the paradigm by which people are thinking, and and that that is the most important thing because the most important weapon that we have is our minds, 
and how we employ them. Brother, thank you for being here. our culture. We are a people. Don't forget that we are a people that have been through many things. Many things. We've forgotten our way. We need to go back. And that doesn't mean Judeo-Christian. It doesn't hit that some of that's there. But we are a very ancient people. And we need to understand that. We need to we need to reconnect with that. Amen. All right, brother. All right, folks. Follow, give this man a follow on Twitter. Hit him up. And of course, the eternal war can be found on Amazon.com. And I'll have a link down below for that book as well. If you want to pick it up through the link, make everything easy. Uh, But he's written a couple of other really good books on leadership, too, that you can find out there. With that said, God bless everyone. Keep your head on straight. Definitely digest some of these new ideas and and, in some ways dangerous ideas. And uh, be ready for what life throws at us next. With that said, folks, I will talk to you again very, very soon. This is NC Scout, out.